Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Buddhang Dhammang Sanghang Namasami. I'm very, uh, very glad to be here um, this afternoon. Um, this is the first Sunday afternoon talk that I've done for about 15 years. <laughs> so uh, I remember uh, way back when I, I uh, lived here in the uh, late 80s and early 90s. Uh, I would fill in for uh, Lumpur Sumedho occasionally, and uh, so uh, I'm very glad to be uh, to be back during this time, and also these these few months of overlapping as uh, he's uh, uh, getting ready to depart, and I'm just uh, slowly arriving. Um, so the the theme for the afternoon's talk is where is the Dhamma, and. Uh, I think most of you will realize it's, in the, it's actually, the answer to that question is it's, it's in the temple rather than the sala this week. <laughs> Those of you who haven't realized that, please leave the sala now and come over here. So uh, this is an interesting theme. It has uh, uh, many, many dimensions. I've been pondering um, what would be the best way to, to approach this. And, and uh, what occurred to me was, first of all, was to, in a way to... Uh, to look at, first of all, um, rather than where is the Dhamma, but to, to start off with, what is the Dhamma? When we use the word Dhamma or the Sanskrit form Dharma, well, what is it that we mean? What's that referring to? Yeah. <clears throat> when we uh, take the three, what's called the three refuges, when the um, basic... Uh, uh, commitment to the Buddhist path and the, the, the way of Buddhist practice, we uh, pay respects to or affirm our commitment to what the, the three refuges, Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. And so that's usually represented as uh, the Buddha, as Gautama Buddha, the, the, uh, the teacher who lived two and a half thousand years ago, uh, the Dhamma as the, the Buddha's teaching and the, the words that he uh, he gave, and then the the Sangha, the third refuge, is the, um, the community of those who have awakened to the, the, uh, the truth, that have uh, realized the, uh, the nature of reality to, uh, uh, to a certain level of, uh, of, uh, the, of realization, a certain depth of uh, stream entry or um, you know, different levels of enlightenment that, uh, that the Buddha talked about. So that's the classical description of the three refuges. And, uh, and oftentimes when we talk about Dhamma or Dhamma teachings, Buddha Dhamma, uh, the, the, the assumption that the mind makes is naturally towards the, the words of the, of the Buddha. These are uh, uh, the um, usual form that we think of that as referring to. So we think of all of the, uh, the books in the library that are referring to Buddha's teachings or the all of these, the scriptures from the Pali Canon, the, uh, the Theravada scriptures of the southern Buddhist world or the, the sutras of the northern Buddhist world. 
But uh, one of the most important things to, to recognize or to reflect on in this, this area is that the, the, the verbal side of, of the teachings or the, um, the verbal uh, dhamma is, uh, is only one small part of it or one, one dimension of what is, what is meant by, uh, by the word dhamma. Certainly the, the Buddha spoke a lot as, uh, uh, for 45 years he gave uh, gave the Dhamma teachings, and there's volumes and volumes of of, uh, of scriptures that were recorded, memorized by the uh, venerable Ananda initially, and then carried on through and, and memorized and passed on through the ages. But um, and then when we we uh, say study the teachings, then we are extremely grateful to have all of those verbal resources, and the uh, the Buddha's brilliance at putting things into words is is uh, I would say, in my biased opinion, is uh, is unsurpassed in uh, pointing out the the uh, the way to arrive at a, a quality of, of freedom and peace. So it's very easy, very natural for us to then uh, lock our attention onto um, those words, the, the many volumes of the of the Pali Canon or the Mahayana Sutras or the many many commentaries, uh, endless numbers of, of books that have been written about Buddhist teachings over over the centuries, and that uh, volumes and volumes, just in our own library, let alone on the, in the, the, um, uh, the uh, libraries of, of London or Amazon the bookstore, the uh, endless variety of, of teachings available. So it's, it's completely natural and ordinary for us, for us to, to lock our attention onto the words. But uh, one of the... Um, uh, Emphases that our teacher Ajahn Chah used to to make in terms of, of studying Dhamma and uh, committing oneself to, to uh, using the Buddha's teachings, he said that these are are um, teachings to be applied. That the, the value of the word of the Buddha is not in just collecting the words; it's not just in memorizing them or just in the rejoicing in the brilliance of them or the uh, the clarity of those explanations. But the, the, the usefulness, the real value, is in how they can help us, the, the changes they can, they can bring about within us. And, um, and particularly because he was teaching in the context of Thailand, where uh, when he was uh, a young monk, um, back in the uh, earlier part of the middle part of the 20th century, uh, in Thailand it was actually quite rare uh, for monastics to meditate, and extremely rare for any, any lay people to meditate at all. It was sort of considered to be not the done thing, or that if you, it was some, some kind of belief that if you meditated, you'd go crazy, or you'd only, you'd only practice meditation if you were interested in developing black magic. And uh, it was a, a, somehow or other these strange beliefs had grown up, that it was dangerous to meditate, you were going to go crazy, or cause yourself end, endless trouble. So the best thing to do was to study the teachings, make lots of merit, and hope you're going to be reborn in the time of Maitreya Buddha, some undefined point in the future. When the next Buddha comes along, make lots of merit and then, and then uh, make sure you get reborn when the next Buddha comes along. And when uh, people would come to Ajahn Chah and would uh, ask him about that or, or they would express that particular opinion, he'd say, um, so, so you, you, don't, you, you want to deliberately not meditate so that um, uh, you'll, you'll create merit instead so you'll, you'll, and you'll be able to aim your shot just right so you'll arrive in the right country at the right time, just when Maitreya Buddha comes along. I say, oh yeah, that's right. Yes. 
and then he'd give the uh, the uh, northeast Thai equivalent of good luck. <laughs> or rather you than me, you know. Um, but you know, we have we all have our own strange beliefs and customs. Yeah, it's not as though the the, the British are without that. And uh, also, having been living in the United States for the last fifteen years, as you can probably tell by my slightly modified English accent, <laughs> I've only just uh, arrived back in the country. But we all have our own strange beliefs and, and uh, ways of looking at things. And that was what uh, existed at the time in uh, Ajahn Chah's world when he was a, a younger monk. And um, so it was, it was uh, through meeting his teacher, Ajahn Man, Venerable Ajahn Man, and this is a photograph of Venerable Ajahn Man here on the, the right-hand side of the shrine and Venerable Ajahn Chah on the left. And meeting Venerable Ajahn Man and, and uh, other experienced meditation masters that uh, Ajahn Chah learned how to, to practice meditation and saw for himself the immense benefits that come from that. So, but during that time, there was a, a, a very uh, strong emphasis in Thailand on the importance of intellectual study of the teachings, and it was rare to be one who was interested in meditation. So there was often an emphasis on trying to, people to, trying to get people to put down the books and to, um, uh, to sit down, close the eyes, uh, and bring the attention to, uh, uh, to the breath or to a, another meditation object. And so that uh, this was a, a very common theme of Ajahn Chah's, and he would, he would use the analogy of saying, it's rather, if you, if you spend your time studying the teachings, you immerse yourself, so you become an expert in Buddhist philosophy, and you know uh, scads and scads of the teachings, you can even recite books and books of them. So it's rather like being the ladle in the soup pot. The, the soup might be extremely delicious and very rich and, and nourishing, but uh, it's rather like being the ladle. The ladle doesn't know the taste of the soup. That it just sits in the pot. It's right in the soup. <laughs> it's, uh, it's immersed in the soup, but it's not uh, uh, able to uh, benefit from the, uh, uh, the nutrition that's there or the flavor that's there or any of those, those qualities from it. Or another, another example that he used quite memorably when he was visiting here in England and... Uh, I wasn't present myself. I was, I was still, uh, I think I was just finishing off uh, a, uh, a degree at, at London University when Ajahn Chah first visited here in 1977. And uh, as I understand it, it was an exchange between uh, uh, the Ajahn and uh, someone who had been a long-standing uh, practitioner of, of Buddhism and a Buddhist scholar here in Britain. And, and this person asked a, uh, a very intellectual question about the, uh, about the suttas or some particular abstruse aspect of Buddhist philosophy. And, and it was clear to, to, to Ajahn Chah that, um, that this person was extremely sincere but was v- v- uh, very much fixated on the intellectual knowledge of the, of the teachings. And uh, he said, you know, you have to be, uh, I appreciate your sincerity and this is a good question in some respects, but you really have to be, to be careful um, in the way that you relate to, to Buddhist knowledge because you know, if you spend all your time studying the, the scriptures and, and um, delving into just the intellectual aspect of it, and you make that the most important thing, it's rather like someone who spends all their time raising chickens, looking after them, taking care of them, feeding them, uh, making sure they all have the best, best water supply and all the, uh, the, uh, the, the best kind of chicken run to, to roam around in. And then all you do is, to, all you do is collect the, chick, the, the chicken's droppings rather than collecting the eggs. 
you know, you've got all of this, this richness and goodness that's coming from the teachings, but you're, you're missing the main, uh, the main uh, thing of value, and you're just collecting the leftovers. And so, it was, and he was, in his very friendly and, and uh, charming way, sort of chiding, <laughs> gently chiding this person that uh, they uh, uh, could be better off steering their attention towards uh, a more essential aspect of, of the teachings. So then if the, if the Dhamma is not the words themselves, and sometimes we can um, instead think of the Dhamma as some kind of um, magical quality that's off somewhere else, and that uh, it's, very, it's very easy for us to think that there's some kind of mystical place or mag- magical domain somewhere. And certainly when, when I left England, uh, just after I, I'd finished that um, that degree in 77, I decided to go out to the mystic east. I thought, okay, I'm going to begin my journey to the east. Okay, I've done it with, I've done it with academia. I'm fed up with that. Had enough. Finished my degree. I'm all, fin- I'm all, I'm all done there. So I'll go off on my spiritual, spiritual journey. And I'd heard that Bali was a mystical island. And, this, and everything was, was very spiritual there. So I thought, well, I'll go to Bali and be spiritual. You know, it's, it's a spiritual island, so I'll go there. And of course, I'll be, when I get there, I'll be spiritual, right? <laughs> So, uh, to my amazement, yeah, so I, I packed up my things and said goodbye to everybody and took off on a one-way journey to the Far East and um, originally uh, flew into Kuala Lumpur and then made my way down to Bali and then finally, here I am, the mystical island. And to my amazement, all of my neurotic, insecure <laughs> habits that I'd uh, been hoping to leave behind in England all come with me. And so, uh, to my amazement, here I was on the on the, the mystical spiritual island, and and I and uh, and all of my problems were still there too. So I, I remember th- having a bit of a head scratch, thinking, "Hmm, I I, uh, I thought I was going to leave all this behind." And then a few moments later, I thought that was a really stupid thing to <laughs> to believe. <laughs> Why on earth did I think it was going to be that simple? But we can we can be that way. We can think that there's some kind of magical place that we can visit, that some beautiful uh, uh, spot in the countryside or some uh, place that has a particular value going off to, even to, to say, Buddhist countries or places that have a, um, a particular serenity or beautiful natural quality. But isn't it interesting how many times we've been to that perfect place and then, darn it. <laughs> so this, will be, this place would be wonderful if only I wasn't here. You know, if only I hadn't brought me along too, then uh, this this uh, foolish mind that keeps chattering away and writing writing commentaries about everything that's going on here, or not even going on. So we can look for the Dhamma, this uh, this uh, this say this quality of truth or reality, this uh, this special quality. We can think it's somewhere else or some other time, like say back in the time when with the, the Buddha, with Gautama Buddha, two and a half thousand years ago, well then it was, it was really easy to, to see, the, see the Dhamma because you were, the, the, the Buddha was teaching it and explaining it. If, if we'd be able to hear the Buddha directly, then we would be able to know. Or maybe off in the future, well, you know, we've missed the last Buddha, we'll be ready for the next one. You know. But uh, he shouldn't make fun of waiting for the Maitreya. I'm really serious about that. <laughs> and I do want to be around when Maitreya Buddha comes. And, and so we think, well, it's off in the future.
Or maybe our attention is, is more drawn to, well, it's, it's there in an individual person. If, if you actually, uh, not just meeting a, uh, a fully enlightened Buddha, but meeting a, 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 an enlightened sage or a, a great spiritual teacher, that in meeting that person face-to-face, hearing their teachings face-to-face then, uh, that, that will be uh, when we are able to encounter the Dhamma and to, 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 to know that, that truth, to understand that truth. And um, so uh, certainly that's, that's true to a certain extent. There's one of the famous, uh, most well-known and respected teachings of the, the Buddha was an encounter between himself and a monk called Vakali. Uh, and Vakali was extremely ill and couldn't, uh, couldn't uh, get up and, and walk about and uh, couldn't come to visit the Buddha. And the Buddha had heard that Vakali was, was, was suffering and extremely ill, and so instead uh, he, uh, he went to go and visit him. The Buddha uh, was living in Rajagaha, and he went out to, to find Vakali in his, in his hut, in his kuti, and, and went to see him. And, and Vakali was quite distressed because he was so weak he could hardly even get up off the, off the, the low bed to, to pay his respects to the Buddha. And uh, the Buddha said, please, Vakali, be, be at ease. Don't, don't get upset. Just, just stay where you are. You don't have to... To bow or anything, you know, you're you're way too sick to, to get up and, and move. Don't don't worry about it. And um, Vakli said, "Well, I I feel I I would really like to pay respects to you, and it's so long since I've seen you. I felt a lot of regret and unhappiness because it's been so long since I've been able to come and see you and to to um, uh, to, to visit." And then the Buddha said, "Why would you want to see this this filthy body, Vakli?" You know? <laughs> This is just this ordinary, uh, un, uh, unpleasant collection of organic parts. You know. well, um, uh, why, why do you want to see this? You know, why is this so important to you? And, uh, and so uh, then in this exchange, then Vakali is, uh, expresses his, his devotion to the Buddha. And then um, and the Buddha says, to him, says well, I don't, really, I don't really mind that you know, the body, it's not so much the... Uh, the, the physical body that's the, the important thing, but just being in your presence is, uh, is uh, that which is significant. And the Buddha said, you know, you know Vakali, you don't really have to, to see me, because one who sees the Dhamma sees me. One who sees me sees the Dhamma. And uh, that exchange between the two of them is, is a teaching that, that's quoted very, very often. And so that uh, we can have that experience when you meet some uh, a great spiritual teacher like Lumpur Sumato or uh, here at Amravati or, or other uh, great teachers, that there's something, a, a shift that can happen within us, a transformation that can happen within us. Something of our own uh, everyday concerns falls away, our, our own uh, mundane uh, reality and, and perceptions uh, drop away for a moment, and then the mind is, is awakened to a, a more fundamental uh, presence, a more fundamental reality. And that's certainly being. Uh, close to, to great beings can have that effect. But then, uh, similarly, if um, uh, I think the, the teaching that the Buddha was trying to give to Vakali is to, is to say, yes, you know, Vakali, I know that there is this, you know, this uh, uh, reverence that you have and this a very positive effect that you feel when you're around me, but actually, if you see the Dhamma itself, if you see the, that truth, then it's as if you are face-to-face with the Buddha. And the, the partner to this, this teaching is one that um, you find in a, a, a sutta in the Itivutaka, which is called the hem of the robe, and the Buddha say, where the Buddha says, 
if um, uh, if someone uh, took hold of the of the edge of my of my robe and followed me around day after day, if that person's heart was uh, was filled with greed, hatred, and delusion, it would be as if they were far away from me, as if they were remote and distant from me. Um, but if someone is way off uh, in retreat in the Himalayas and they're physically they're a hundred leagues away, um, if that person's heart is is united with uh, uh, with virtue, with concentration, with wisdom, if they practice the Eightfold Path, then it's as if they're sitting close to me, face to face. So these are, are um, yeah, interesting and, and useful teachings in terms of, of uh, how the Buddha related to that, that quality of physical presence. Because what can also happen when we feel like, well, if I'm close to the teacher, then I'm close to the Dhamma, then we can end up like hanging on to the edge of the robe. <laughs> following devotedly the teacher around and maybe some of you are already booking your tickets to Thailand to, in November to <laughs> see if you can keep track of, of Lumpur Sumato as he travels uh, I'm not psychic by the way so in case any of you know in case any of you are thinking he knows how does he know he's, he's bugging my phone <laughs> it's just human nature is, a, is the way it is so we can end up trying to grow, draw close to the teacher and thinking, well, if I'm close to the teacher, I'm close to the guru, then I'm close to reality, I'm close to the Dhamma. It's, it's, right, it's embodied in this person. So uh, if I'm close to them, I'm close to the, to the truth, I'm close to that reality. And that uh, in the same way, it was looking after the chickens. You, know, you, can, uh, you can be trying so hard to get close that you, you don't realize that you're your own attitude is, is filled with, with uh, anxiety or with uh, an attitude of grasping or a, an attitude of, of insecurity. And uh, we're creating a dependency on uh, the presence of the other. So what all of these point to, these, these kind of places where, in a way where the Dhamma isn't, it, uh, it really points to uh, what's left, which is that... Uh, Essentially, the Dhamma is to be found within ourselves. And that's uh, uh, even though there are these external forms, like the presence of a great teacher, the thousands of, of pages of, of sutta teachings and uh, commentaries and so forth, uh, the, man, the, the wonderful effects of being in peaceful places or, or serene environments, or even in Bali, you know. <laughs> they, they do have their effect. But in a way, those effects are more like a catalyst for helping us to wake up to that, the inner reality, and that the Dhamma is essentially to be, it's a quality to be recognized within ourself, and the words, the presence of, of the teacher, uh, these other uh, external forms are, are there to help awaken, to trigger uh, a, a recognition of that inner quality. Now, there's, an, it's, there's a very substantial clue to this with. Uh, when we have our, our daily recitation of the, the qualities of Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, uh, when we're describing the Buddha and the Sangha, then the words of the chanting very much reflect the, uh, the external aspects of these. Like it's talking about the, the Buddha as the teacher, as um, Gautama Buddha, who lived two and a half thousand years ago, as, a, as our mentor and exemplar and, and guide. And the Sangha as being those who have awakened to the to various levels of enlightenment. That's what that mysterious phrase, the four pairs, the eight kinds of noble beings, it means that those who have reached the, the on the path to stream entry and those who have reached stream entry on the path to being a once returner and 
her having reached once return, and there's four levels of, of enlightenment. But when you, you look at the reflection on Dhamma, then it's actually got a very different quality. It says uh, the Dhamma is apparent here and now, timeless, encouraging investigation, leading inwards to be experienced by each wise person for themselves. So it doesn't, it, it doesn't even uh, tangentially refer to the words of the teaching or even a, 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 the physical presence of, a, of a, a teacher. But it's talking about an inequality. So these aspects of leading inwards to be realized by each wise person for themselves. So it's an inequality. Yeah. And when we try to um, uh, describe that, that inequality that of, of Dhamma or of truth, uh, then words start to fail us. So that the, uh, uh, the Buddha tended to use fairly simple language in trying to, to um, point to the way of realizing Dhamma, but he, uh, he doesn't go into enormous detail or poetic descriptions of so what exactly is the Dhamma. It's more the attention goes on to the means of realizing that truth, that ultimate reality itself, though is... Uh, is beyond words, is beyond concepts, but the, the concepts and the words, the forms, can point to the way to realize it. But uh, there are a few, uh, a few ways that, um, that uh, it can be described in terms of the, the what the Dhamma is. And one way that I find is helpful to reflect on it is um, to consider it to be the, um, the the fundamental ordering principle of the universe. It's like that, uh, the Dhamma is uh, that uh, sort of quality which, um, say, forms the, the, the patterns of the mental and the physical world, sort of the underlying ordering principle of all things. And uh, the Buddha summarized this as, as a place where he says, uh, the Dhamma is, is dependent origination. Dependent origination is the Dhamma. And what that, what that essentially means is the law of causality, that fundamental law of cause and effect, like this affecting that, that this is um, uh, not just a, the kind of the idea of causality, because you might think this is, sounds a little bit dry, <laughs> a law of cause and effect. But uh, it's not just a, an idea of a law, but in a way that the fundamental kind of engine of our own experience and the fabric of our, of our being, our mind, our heart, the, the material world, the whole universe, the Dhamma is the, um, in a way the, the fundamental forming and activating principle of, of the whole uh, mental and physical realm. When that's experienced, then the, the experience of Dhamma, then you can describe as a quality of, of suchness, a quality of, of peacefulness. And when we use the word Nibbana, or Nirvana in Sanskrit, that's the describing the, the, the experience of the mind knowing the, the Dhamma without any kind of obstruction whatsoever. When the heart awakens to its own nature, when the Dhamma is, is truly known, the experience is that of peacefulness, the experience is that of, of Nibbana, of suchness. Now the, um, so uh, that's a, 
by way of, uh, of um, some reflections on the, on the what of Dhamma, what we're, uh, what we're looking for. <laughs> so maybe that already sounds a bit too abstruse <laughs> and hard to pin down. But this is, uh, this is the, uh, the, the nature of, of the teaching, also the nature of reality. You have to also consider, after the Buddha was, was fully enlightened, his first thought was, there's no point trying to explain this to anybody. No one is ever, ever going to understand this. So I'm just going to go off and be a hermit. <laughs> so he thought about retirement even before he started. So, the, so it's, it's not easy to pin down. Yeah. It's not easy to, to characterize. But uh, to me, it's, it's very important to, um, in a way, to get a feel for what it is that we're, we're referring to. When we reflect on the, on the Dhamma, uh, when we uh, revere that, that quality, it's, uh, in a way, bringing our hearts into accord with the actuality of our, of our own lives, of the whole natural order. That's what we're doing. And when that there is that alignment when the, there is that attunement of the heart to that actuality. Then it's just like when you're, if you're chanting together, it's like when all the voices come together and they're all exactly on the same pitch and the same rhythm. There's a, oh. <laughs> or if you're listening to a, an or- a piece of orchestral music, it's when the, all of the instruments come together in a, in a glorious, harmonious form and there's something that's beyond the individual notes that happens. That, the, that there's a, a kind of a liberated quality that's there in the that comes with the integration of all the different sounds. And so when we're realizing Dhamma, we, we use language like the ordering principle of the universe, it can sound a bit dry, but if you think of it in terms of what's the effect of that music on the heart when you hear a whole orchestra or a whole you know, a temple full of voices chanting harmoniously, it's that singing, it's when the, when the, the heart sings, with uh, that uh, quality of uh, attunement and accord, that you know, that's, that is, in a way, on a on a sensory level, is a a, a representation of that quality of, of realizing dhamma. When the heart is in accord with reality, there's that same kind of uh, transcendent uh, element. So then, the where, if that's the what. <laughs> Oh, talking about it, referring to the what, then the where. So uh, uh, I've reflected on this. One of the reasons we, when uh, when we were um, planning out these talks for the for the summer, then Lumpur Sumedha said, "Well, here are all these titles. I'll pick the ones that look interesting to you, and I'll just take the ones that, that are left over." <laughs> so, uh, which was very brave of him. But uh, this was this was one that I, I picked because uh, I. Uh, it's an area I, I have reflected on quite a lot. This, and um, just the uh, the idea of of location in terms of of dhamma, because you can say, well, the dhamma is within, but you know, what does that really mean? So I thought I'd tell a little a little story that I heard. This is supposed to be a true story. Um, uh, this was by someone who. Who used to be an Oxford Don, and um, he uh, he told me that um, one day somewhere in Oxford there was a, a tourist was walking around uh, an American American tourist was walking around with a um, with a guidebook and was looking very confused and was a bit flustered and and uh, and sort of upset and and um, frustrated 
and she'd been obviously walking around town for quite a while. And finally, she, uh, she gave up and decided she'd talk to one of the locals. So she saw this professorial type, you know, with a sort of tweed jacket with the leather elbows and pipe still smoking in the top pocket, yeah. and <coughs> who's um, striding purposefully down the street. And she said, excuse me, sir, can you tell me exactly where is the university? <laughs> and apparently, the, the, uh, the professorial type uh, answered, um, Madam, the university cannot be said to be anywhere. Whereness does not apply. The university only possesses metaphysical rather than actual existence. <laughs> and, then, and then walked off. <laughs> so she's still left holding her guidebook. And then, apparently, some other passerby, an undergrad who was passing by, heard this exchange and thought he'd translate. And so he said, well, what's, what he meant was that um, Oxford University does not exist as a single campus. It's separate colleges that are dotted all around the town. And there is no physical university. The university is an idea uh, which uh, is agreed upon as existing by um, various people, but it's not located uh, anywhere in, in space. You have all the separate bits that, um, that uh, call themselves uh, colleges, and they can group together and they can organize exams and give de degrees, but the university cannot be said, the university, quote-unquote, cannot be said to be anywhere. Whereness does not apply. So that's how he gave the... Apparently, I guess that means it has metaphysical existence. It's beyond the physical world. Yes, it exists, but not physically. But it doesn't actually exist. So anyway, I like that story. <laughs> it seems extremely credible to me. Um, now we, uh, so in, it relates to the, the Dhamma in terms of, of uh, the quality of awareness, because we... we um, can um, take our own, our own lives or our own experience of, of this moment. We say, well, here we are, we're in the temple at uh, Amravati, that's where we are. And we, we take these, uh, such an idea or an experience um, as very ma in a very matter-of-fact way. It seems quite normal. But then we can also recognize that, well, in another sense, the temple uh, of Amaravati is in our minds, right? You can say, we are in the temple, but also, like if I close my eyes, the temple vanishes. I open them, and then here it is again. <laughs> that uh, we, we put together the, the uh, experience of this place, it's woven together through sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and, uh, and yet all of those experiences are known through the agency of our mind. I'm not saying that, that this is, uh, the temple is a, is a complete invention of my mind, but, but for all of us here, everything that we know about this moment is known through the agency of our mind, isn't it? Right? It's woven together through what we hear, what we see, what we feel, uh, and it all happens within the mind. We open our eyes and we say, well, no, the temple's all around us. But that... Uh, those, the site of the building, 
the sound of my voice, the feeling of your weight on the cushion or on the chair. Those are all sensory experiences woven together through our, our mind. And so all that we know about the, the world is happening within our mind. Now, we, um, when we reflect on, on this, um, we don't often think in terms of, of that feeling of, of being here or being located in a particular place as being an obstruction. You might think, well, this is getting really obscure now. <laughs> we might not think of that as being a, a hindrance to our freedom. But um, just as when we start to, to explore Buddhist meditation, we begin to look at the feeling of self and the feelings of time that uh, we can feel like I, was, uh, I am so many years old, I can remember the past, I can, think, I can imagine the future. Um, uh, I have a feeling of, of indi- individuality, a feeling of self. But when we start to look at the, the mind and how the mind works, uh, and uh, particularly the patterns of self-creation, how we, we think about ourselves and our, our memories, our expectations, our opinions about ourselves, then it's very, very easy to, to, to see how that um, often, with a, along with the feeling of I and me and mine, there's a sense of tension or alienation, a sense of, of burden that goes along with that. So a lot of, of Buddhist meditation is geared towards learning to, to see the, the relative nature of the feeling of self. So probably any of you who've, who've read much of Buddhist teachings or been around these teachings for some years, we very familiar with the teachings about not-self. And uh, in terms of developing insight meditation, uh, the Buddha pointed to the, um, the experience of, of seeing that all things that we that, uh, pass through consciousness, every aspect of the, the mental world, possesses three characteristics. One, they change, anicca, Two, uh, they're unsatisfactory. That means that no single experience can be permanently pleasing. Nothing can be, can be um, pleasant or, or gratifying permanently. We can't stay perpetually uh, pleased or, or uh, content with any one thing because things change. So things are, uh, are fundamentally unsatisfactory in that way. And then thirdly, uh, all things uh, cannot be said to, to be a self or to belong to a self. All that, the, uh, that we experience, our thoughts and feelings and, and memories, the sensations of the body, um, the more that these are looked at closely, the more it can be seen that these are not truly who and what we are. There's an experience of, of a feeling, of a thought, of a memory, even a memory that's extremely personal, only known to us as an individual. And it might have a feeling of I-ness and me-ness and minus gathered around it. But when there's a close looking at that, we see, well, that's just a, a coloration of it. That's just a, a patterning of it. And that in and of itself, it's just a, a pattern of nature. It's just a form coming into being, doing its thing, arising, passing away. It isn't fundamentally who and what we are. A memory arises, takes its shape, does its thing, and then fades away, just like the sound of, a, of an individual word or a... a, a, a a, uh, a bird song or the sound of a, a, uh, a child or a, a sensation in the body. They are patterns of nature that come into being, do their thing and pass away. 
So these are familiar and, and common areas of, of investigation. Um, that we experience the, 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 um, the patterns of mind. And that when we develop insight, insight meditation, what we're doing is loosening up the habits of, of self-view, the way that the mind is confined in identification with our thoughts, our moods, our emotions. When we begin to see that, oh, it's just a thought, it's not me and mine, we find that it has a, a whole different texture to it. It's much less of a burden upon us, or a memory, or a responsibility. That once we see these are not, we don't take them personally, they come into being, they do their thing, they fade away. There's a lightness in the heart, there's an ease with which we experience things. There's a, a, an openness and a, 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 say a, a peacefulness that we experience when there's a, a, a letting go of, of the habits of self-creation, letting go of self, and letting go of time, letting go of the past and future. Now one of the things that we, we don't notice um, is that along with uh, that feeling of, of, uh, of time and of self, we also continually create the experience that we, we sort of, our senses encourage us to think in terms of the past, and the present, the future, and we make time into a solid thing or we make the self into a solid thing. And then we bring the insight uh, meditation to bear on that and examine that, we see all oh, this. Really, there is only the present. The time is actually somewhat illusory. That what we always experience is this present moment. You know, the past is a memory, the future is an idea. But they are all experienced now. And then when we look at the feeling of self, we realize, okay, well, that's technically that's called you know, my feeling, but it's, there isn't really a mean and a mindness that, that's anything solid or real. It's just another pattern of nature known here within this sphere of awareness. That's all. But what we can what we can miss is that there's uh, all of these these things, all these patterns of, of experience are all felt, or uh, all taken to be experienced here, right? It all seems to be happening in in this mind, in this place. And uh, uh, again, this might not seem like a big issue <laughs> in your uh, or kind of cluttering up your days. But I, I've, uh, for myself, I found that a number of, a number of years ago, when I was uh, on a, a long retreat at the the monastery, monastery in California, it was sort of way in the midst of the winter retreat, and things were very very quiet. And uh, I was uh, uh, was using this, these uh, reflections on not self, and, and looking very very closely at the, all of the the flow of, of uh, feelings and, and moods and. Such like, and it was really, really clear to me that well, none of this is who and what I am. There was a, 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 a great sense of transparency around the feeling of self, but there was a f- also, along with that, despite it seemed like there was there was no time, there was no self at that at that moment. There was still this feeling of of, of uh, tension or burden. I thought this is really strange because I'm, I'm kind of got the whole list covered here. It's, I can see all the anicca, dukkha, anatta, unsatisfactory. Uh, impermanent, not self. So, what's this? What's this feeling of burden or, or tension or or, uh, or confinement? And then it suddenly struck me. Oh, I know what it is. It's this is all happening here. There's this feeling of here-ness. 
that this experience is located at this spot where, you know, uh, where my mind is, quote unquote. And, uh, and so I started to investigate that. And this was one of the reasons why I, uh, when the, this title was suggested, I thought it would be, I'd like to explore this because I found this was such a rich area for myself. Uh, because when I started to look at that feeling of here-ness, that, uh, that life is happening here, and that I began to see that just like the feeling of self or the feeling of time, it's an ordinary, matter-of-fact, everyday reality that is, is like, well, of course we're here, where else are we? We're not, we're not still in Hemel. <laughs> you know, we're, not, we're not in London. We're, you know, of course we're here. Just like, well, of course I'm a person. What else am I? I'm not a you know, giraffe. You know. Um, of course, everything changes. Of course, time is real. You know, it's Sunday today, otherwise we wouldn't all have come here, right? That'd be ridiculous. <laughs> so like all of these aspects, on a, on a conventional level, that um, these are matter-of-fact realities. But I tend to call them matter-of-fiction realities. <laughs> Just occurs to me. <laughs> it's more of a matter-of-fiction realities, because to call today Sunday, it's a human agreement. On the lunar calendar, this is not, a, this is not an, a, an observance day. This is not the lunar Sunday. <laughs> that will be next Wednesday, I think. It'll be, the, uh, it'll be the half moon. It's an agreed upon convention, right? It's, uh, we, we, call it, we call it Sunday because we have a, the convention of a seven-day week. A few centuries ago, a few thousand years ago, the seven-day week didn't exist. We, had the, we went by the moon. So... The agreement of, of calling this a, a Sunday uh, is a, a human convention. So uh, the, uh, the f- conventions of time, the conventions of self, have also along with them the conventions of, of place. And so when we, we look at this in the meditation and start to explore it, then we can find a quality of, of freedom, a quality of, of uh, contentment that uh, can, we can miss in, in, uh, in the flow of uh, feeling that we're sort of doing all the, the right things or doing all the needful. Well, there's a, uh, when I started to look at this, I remember there was a particular statement that, that Ajahn Mahabur made, um, which was, uh, he's one of the great enlightened masters of Thailand and highly highly regarded, uh, widely recognized as being a uh, fully enlightened being. And he described in his, his own description of his enlightenment experience, just after the, the passing away of his teacher, Ajahn Man, he was, uh, <coughs> after uh, Venerable Ajahn Man's funeral, Ajahn Mahabur was offered a small branch monastery and he was uh, practicing walking meditation. And he said that uh, as he was walking, there came to the, this insight came to him, that uh, he said it was almost like hearing it more than thinking it. And the way he phrased it was, if there is a point or a center of the knower anywhere, that is the essence of a level of being. And so I, I just had remembered that when, um, when uh, I started thinking about it, or I was struck by this feeling of, of, of uh, hearness. Oh yeah, that's exactly what Ajahn Mahabur was talking about. If there is a point or a center of the knower, if we think that the knowing or the, 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 uh, the focus of experience is here at this spot, so that's, that's where the self gets born. In a way, that's like the, the genesis of the I feeling 
comes from that the the the, uh, the shrinking or the gathering of of experience to a here-ness. So that that got my attention. I thought, well, this is pro- this is, feels like it's really worth investigating. And then uh, following that, then uh, I remembered um, also the uh, there's particular teachings from the Udana, which um, you, many of you who have, who have been coming along to Lumpur Sumato's talks and listening to him recently will know that this is, these are passages that he, he's extremely fond of. Um, the, the verses on the or teachings on the unborn, the unoriginated, the uncreated. And um, so I was also reminded of the, this particular teaching. <laughs> So this is the Buddha talking about ultimate reality, the unconditioned reality. There is that sphere where there is no earth, no water, no fire, nor wind, no sphere of infinity of space, infinity of consciousness, of nothingness, or even neither perception nor non-perception. There there is neither this world nor the other world, neither moon nor sun. This sphere I call neither a coming nor a going nor a staying still, neither a dying nor a reappearance. It has no basis, no evolution, and no support. This, just this, is the end of dukkha. Now again, that might seem a bit abstruse. <laughs> or not even very attractive. No sun, no moon, no stars. Ah. You know, I don't want to go there. <laughs> but um, it's important to recognize when the Buddha says this, just this, is the end of suffering. This is the end of dukkha. That's, that should get our attention. And so what he's, he's saying there, and I think particularly the... the, the the phrase that struck me is, this sphere I call neither a coming nor a going nor a staying still, neither a dying nor a reappearance. Neither a coming nor a going nor a staying still. And, that, and so what it was pointing to, to me is this quality of Dhamma. When we realize the Dhamma, there needs to be a letting go of the feeling of, of place, the feeling of, of all kinds of location. And then I was also reminded of, of uh, the final teaching that, that Lumpur Cha gave to Ajahn Sumedho way back in 1981. So that uh, in like how you, you hear so many teachings, so many Dhamma talks and read so many Dhamma books and then well, somehow it's all parked away back in the archives and then, when, then uh, 20, 30 years later it becomes relevant and it all sort of pops up again. So then I remembered, oh yeah, there was that me- the, the final message that Lumpur Cha gave to to Ajahn Sumedha, that was really uh, uh, pertinent to this, this theme. And this was back at, uh, in 1981, before Amaravati existed. And we were living at a Chithurst Monastery, and uh, a letter came from Thailand, and it was written in the hand of one of the Western monks. And it was addressed to Ajahn Sumedha, and he said, and it, uh, the letter began, Well, Tanajan, you're not going to believe this, but uh, Lumpur Cha asked me to take dictation because he wanted to write you a letter. So, um, but here it is, and this, and this is what he wanted me to write. And he said, um, whenever you have feelings of love or hate for anything whatsoever, these will be your aids and partners in building paramita, and spiritual virtues. The Buddha Dharma is not to be found in moving forwards, nor in moving backwards, nor in standing still. This Sumedho is your place of non-abiding. That was it. (laughs) 
So that was, a, that was a, really Ajahn Chah's final message to Ajahn Sumedho because shortly after that he had the stroke and he was uh, no longer able to... Uh, uh, over the next few months his, his health degenerated a lot and then by the time uh, Ajahn Sumedho went back to visit again he couldn't speak or walk and, and that was really their final communication. So you think if Ajahn Chah was in, intuited that his health was collapsing and that uh, this was going to be his last chance to send any advice to his trusted uh, disciples starting up a new monastery over, overseas. You think, well, Sumedha, you should do this and don't do that, and I want you to <laughs> set things up in this way and don't do that. You know, you have a lot of... Li- to me, I would tend to go towards a list of instructions. You know, lots of do's and don'ts. And, and, uh, well, you must always do this, Sumedha, and you know, this and this and this you can change if you want to, but you absolutely mustn't change that. And, but there wasn't any of that. Yeah. So if you think of this in terms of, of, of uh, Lumpur Chah's final instructions, okay, the last piece of advice he's going to be able to give. And what he chooses to say is, the Buddha Dharma is not to be found in moving forwards, nor in moving backwards, nor in standing still. This, is, this Sumato is your place of non-abiding. So uh, what that says to, to me, and, and how it re- relates to this, this uh, exploration of where is the Dhamma, is as soon as we try and find the Dhamma or the right thing, you know, looking for the right thing or what's true, what's real, as soon as we look for that in a plan, in things progressing, or we think it's, um, what's happening is it's all falling apart, or, or even that everything is, is absolutely stable, uh, that's all moving forwards, moving backwards, standing still. And that, you know, the reality of things is not to be found in whether things are progressing, whether things are falling apart, or whether they're, they're, they're perfectly stable. <laughs> whether things are going forward, going backwards, or standing still. That's not where the reality is. And it's only through letting go of uh, forming our judgments in terms of, of things improving, things degenerating, us going somewhere, us going nowhere, or, or, uh, or us being stuck or, or being stationary. It's a matter of, of letting go of defining how things are or what the, the right thing is in terms of those uh, ordinary everyday categories. When we, we let go of that, because it's a very strong urge, certainly for myself, you know, my mind is very much prone to when I have, wanting to have a plan or figuring things out. You know, I love to take refuge in explanation <laughs> or a list. You know, if I've got a list, then everything's all right with the world. As long as I can... As long as I've got my list, then I'm okay. But what this is pointing to is that the, the, the only thing to trust where we're really going to find the Dhamma is in that place of non-abiding, of their readiness to, to let go of, of um, defining where we are or what the right thing is, defining that sort of place of, of being. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's, a, it's not a, a, an e- e- easy quality to uh, explain or to exemplify. But um, it's a very key aspect of, of meditation practice. So if we're wanting to develop wisdom, develop the quality of insight and using insight meditation, then uh, what, what I found is, is using these reflections on, on, uh, on location or non-locality, on non-abiding, 
learning to see how we tend to to lock our attention onto the, the feeling of everything's happening here or the experience of things happening here or wanting to define who and what we are by, by a particular activity or, or where things are going or how things are progressing. It takes a, 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 a careful attention to that to see, oh yeah, my mind is trying to find an abiding place in a plan or in a, an explanation or a, 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 a description of, uh, trying to, to pin things down. And then we, we see that effort happening within us and we respond by, by loosening up, by, by letting go and allowing that, that uh, quality of non-abiding, uh, of letting the, the, the Dhamma be unlocated, letting go of that sense of, of here-ness, then it's very frustrating and disturbing to the ego. <laughs> but very liberating to the heart. Because in terms of ego and, and self, we love to have things defined and clear, even though, it's, even though it might be um, a, a fiction. We prefer our, our familiar fictions to the, the unfamiliar, uh, unconditioned and unformed, the, the unlocated. But if, uh, if what we really value is the quality of freedom, then there needs to be a recognition of that. So out of this, in the, when, uh, during that retreat, and, and one, uh, a practice I'd like to suggest, if for those of you who, who are interested in Buddhist meditation or have done some, some Buddhist meditation, is with, uh, um, with insight meditation practice when the mind is brought to a quality of calm or steadiness, a quality of focus. And then uh, the mind rests easily in the present moment along with the, the reflections on, because uh, generally speaking, what we, we'd use would be the reflections on, on, uh, on change, like to recognize, oh, this is changing, this, is, this, this sound is arising and ceasing, or this thought is arising and ceasing. On unsatisfactoriness, that, you know, this, is, this feeling is dukkha, this, this memory is dukkha, this, this, is, this is unsatisfactory, it can't be totally and permanently pleasing in and of itself. Or that it's not self, this, this uh, memory is not who and what I am. It arises, it ceases. It's not a self or doesn't belong to a self. This, this feeling of I, <laughs> even the, our own name, is just another formation in nature that's not truly who and what we are. So along with those, refle- uh, with those reflections on impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and not self, we use a ref- develop the reflection on, on non-locality. And what I used in that, that retreat time was mostly the question, just I would bring up the question, where is here? Where is here? <laughs> or just even, not even using a question, just to, to use uh, the word here-ness. And uh, through bringing that attention to the, the feeling of, of, uh, of uh, loca- the mind trying to, lo- to, to be located, then there, that would be like bringing the spotlight. Like you've got this, the sunlight coming in and spotlighting a few other people. <laughs> it's like the, uh, that feeling, that presumption of, of location would be spotlighted. And then, and then the, the wisdom faculty of the heart recognizes, oh, where doesn't really apply. It's, that's a presumption. It's not anywhere. The truth is not anywhere. This awareness is not anywhere. Uh, so in, in answer to the question, where is the Dhamma? You can't really say, you, uh, to say it's everywhere is not quite right. And to say, 
it's nowhere is not quite right. But uh, I also, uh, when I was reflecting on this, I came up with the, uh, the neologism of not where. <laughs> the Dhamma is not where. <laughs> that it's uh, awareness does not apply. And when we, the, there's a, a letting go of that quality of, of, uh, of fixity, of, um, of location, then just like uh, Ajahn, I'm not going to guarantee total enlightenment like Ajahn Mahabur. <laughs> But it's, uh, to me that was interesting that that very insight was what presaged his complete liberation. That if there is a center or a point uh, for the knower, then that is the, the essence of a level of being. When, that, uh, when the, the, the knowing is, uh, is not focused around a center, when that knowing is allowed to, to be uh, non-located, then there's a... a, a uh, freedom from birth is like the, the the sense of self is is not seeded, and that there's a there's awareness. The mind is fully awake and, and open, but there's a quality uh, of freedom and a, a lack of confinement, and uh, and and an ease, a peacefulness that is is very hard to find if that uh, um, the quality of awareness is still. Uh, unconsciously being fixed, uh, being uh, grasped and uh, being identified with a, a particular focus. And maybe the, the last thing to say is um, that uh, in terms of, of where is the Dhamma, that might all sound, I realize I'm in danger of sounding extremely abstruse with all of this, but I do find this a very helpful tool in, in developing insight practice. And uh, one of the, uh, another of the sequences Ajahn Chah used to use, or another of the, the forms of the teaching that he used to use a lot, was he would say that in terms of, of developing the practice, it starts off with us hearing the Dhamma. We hear the Dhamma, then we practice the Dhamma. Having practiced the Dhamma, we, uh, we know it. So we hear it, we practice it, we know it. Uh, we know the Dhamma. Uh, and then with that knowing, from going from an intellectual knowing to a, 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 a direct realization, then the final stage of that whole sequence is that of being Dhamma. That it's, uh, that's the, the progression that, that develops. And, so, uh, and he would often talk in these terms that the, the point is not just to understand the Dhamma or to, 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 to know it intellectually, but to be Dhamma, to realize this is what we are, everything that we are is Dhamma. As he would also say, inside is Dhamma, outside is Dhamma, everything is Dhamma. <laughs> and so that uh, when we develop this practice to the full, then we realize that's, that's what we are, that's all, that's all that we are, and that's all we ever have been. It's just that we missed it because we thought we were this personality, or this body, <laughs> or this nationality, this age. We, we didn't realize, oh, this is all Dhamma. Inside is Dhamma, outside is Dhamma, everything is Dhamma. So I offer these thoughts for reflection this afternoon. Please uh, take what is useful and what is not, please leave aside.
So now it's the time for tea, I believe, and I think the uh, the uh, retreat center kitchen and that area is all set up for the the tea time. So please go and help yourselves there. And then um, it's just after three o'clock now. So how long is the the uh, tea time usually? Twenty minutes. So. Uh, so that can be for about 20 minutes and then we can gather back here and if people have any questions or things you'd like to ask or things that need clarification uh, and so forth then please uh, feel free to, to come back and we'll carry on with the time for dialogue uh, later on.